Welcome to the December Dermalogic Surgery Digest Podcast and Beyond the Digest Supplemental Podcast. I am the podcast editor, Naomi Lawrence. Within this expanded issue is the inaugural section of Dermalogic Surgery focused on oncology, which I was proud to co-edit with Murad Alam. We hope our listeners will enjoy the latest thinking in managing skin cancer from some of the top experts in the field. Within the last 20 years, dermatologic surgeons have become the primary physicians to manage complicated skin cancer. This has evolved from two key influences, the widespread availability of Mohs micrographic surgery in academic and cancer centers, and the advent of effective immunotherapeutic drugs for melanoma, advanced keratinocytic carcinoma, and Merkel cell carcinoma. Most surgeons now actively participate in multi-specialty clinics and tumor boards. Through this collaborative involvement with organized medicine, other specialists such as facial plastic surgeons, oculoplastic surgeons, general plastic surgeons, and dermatologic surgeons can appreciate the value of the high cure rate and tissue conservation that microscopic control provides. As a specialty, we have also learned not only to provide surgical services, but stage and grade our cancers. This allows us to better interact with other specialties, understand and explain the prognostic significance of different tumor features and stages and provide more seamless care to our patients who require the services of oncologists and surgical oncologists. In addition, the advent of immunotherapy has improved patients' overall and disease-free survival, and we are managing more individuals with advanced tumors, making sure they have appropriate surveillance for intransient lymph node and distal metastasis, as well as evaluating new tumors. Our specialty has evolved to take care of the full range of our skin cancer patients' oncologic needs. Happy holidays, and as always, thank you for listening, and I hope you have a happy surgery day. This segment of the episode features surgical oncology and reconstructive article reviews. This is Ashley Decker reviewing the original article from Centimeters to Millimeters, The Evolution of the Surgical Margins for Melanoma, a historical review by Drs. Rosenthal and Gavari. This article discusses how the surgical margins for melanoma treatment have evolved over the past century. In the early 1900s, the accepted surgical margins for melanoma were at least five centimeters, and this was based on a case report by a single physician that described the centripetal lymphatic spread of melanoma seen during an autopsy. This remained the standard of care until the 1970s, when Alexander Breslow demonstrated the importance of tumor thickness in determining patient outcomes and served as a catalyst for the use of narrower margins for low-risk tumors. As the understanding of melanoma behavior increased, research began to focus on the impact of narrow versus wide surgical margins on melanoma recurrence and survival, and these randomized clinical trials laid the groundwork for the current guidelines by the NCCN and the AAD. 
In recent years, the paradigm has continued to shift and Mohs has emerged as a widely used method for removal of melanomas in cosmetically sensitive areas. Mohs has the distinct advantage of intraoperative assessment of the complete circumferential deep and peripheral margins, allowing for identification of subclinical tumor and histologic tumor removal prior to reconstruction. Mohs allows for the evaluation of 100% of the margin compared to only 1% to 3% margin evaluation with traditional vertical sectioning. There are many large-scale studies in the literature that support the use of Mohs in the treatment of both in situ and invasive melanomas, highlighting survival outcomes that are comparable if not superior to wide local excision. In addition, Mohs also produces recurrence rates lower than its surgical alternatives. A comprehensive meta-analysis report concluded that Mohs was associated with the lowest local recurrence rates, followed by a staged excision and then wide local excision. Mohs is also useful in the treatment of invasive melanomas and high-risk melanomas, such as acral melanomas. Use of immunostains, including the preferred MART1 immunostain, increases the sensitivity and specificity of the detection of melanoma on frozen sections, with studies showing high concordance between MART1 frozen sections and permanent pathology sent during Mohs for MIS and invasive melanoma. Despite the compelling evidence supporting the use of Mohs, it is an underutilized technique amongst Mohs surgeons for several reasons, including the theoretical risk of skip lesions, which might lead to sampling error with Mohs, difficult discerning between MIS and atypical melanocytic hyperplasia, hyperplasia on frozen section, Mohs for melanoma is time-consuming, which may limit office resources, and use of immunostains is operator-dependent, requiring skill from both the histotech and the Mohs surgeons. However, the paradigm continues to shift with Mohs becoming more widely utilized for the treatment of melanoma. And I personally believe that over time it will become the standard of care. This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the original investigation, the controversy and value of Mohs micrographic surgery for melanoma and melanoma in situ on the trunk and extremities by authors John Zatelli and David Broadland. The authors identified all cases of biopsy-proven MIS and invasive melanoma on the trunk and extremities from a prospectively maintained melanoma database. The first goal was to identify patients with aberrant melanomas that required a surgical margin by Mohs that was greater than the minimum surgical margin recommended by the NCCN. These were referred to as surgical outlier melanomas. These outlier cases represented melanomas that may have resulted in persistent tumor at the surgical margin after wide local excision. The second goal was to evaluate the consequence of local recurrence on the trunk and extremities. Local recurrence was defined as melanoma that had a history of previous treatment with clinical reappearance of melanoma adjacent to or within the scar with an insight to histologic appearance to distinguish it from a dermal metastasis. 2,703 melanomas met study criteria. 50 3% of these were invasive, 121 had locally recurrent melanomas before Mohs, and the average pre-op size was 1.6 centimeters. Of the 1,272 melanomas in situ, 30% were of the lentico maligna type. 10% of the trunk and extremity melanomas in the study were identified as outliers, extending beyond the minimum recommended wide local excision margins. For inv invasive melanomas, 3% would have been outliers using standard excision margins. For recurrent invasive melanomas, 12% of melanomas would have been outliers. 17% of melanomas in situ would have been outliers with a surgical margin of 
five millimeters, and 3% would have been outliers with a one centimeter margin. Recurrent melanomas in situ and all tumors identified as lenticomaligna had a higher outlier rate. A univariate analysis of all melanomas revealed that age over 65, preoperative melanoma diameter, and recurrent status were all found to be statistically significant. Gender, tumor location, thickness, ulceration, and mitotic rate were not factors that were associated with the tumor's outlier status. Melanomas in situ were more likely to be outliers than invasive melanomas. Lenticomaligna subtype increased likelihood of being an outlier. The use of MOS for melanomas on the trunk and extremities is not supported in the guidelines of dermatology, but it is widely used in the real world. 72% of melanomas are located on the trunk and extremity. The guidelines are not uniform. The AAD guidelines state that MOS may be used for MIS, lenticomaligna type, on the face, ears, or scalp for tissue sparing excision. At present, evidence is insufficient to support the use of MOS for MIS elsewhere on the body. The AUC concluded that MOS is appropriate for all primary and recurrent MIS, but was uncertain about primary MIS on the trunk and extremities. Invasive melanomas were not addressed. The NCCN guidelines state that MOS may be considered selectively for MIS and T1A melanomas in anatomically constrained areas excluding the trunk and extremities. The most important criticism for use of MOS on the trunk and extremities is that there is no advantage in the use of MOS for conservation of tissue. However, the most important advantage of MOS is not tissue conservation, but the ability to achieve true histologically negative margins. Wide local excision fails to achieve negative margins in 2% of cases on the trunk and extremities, resulting in persistent tumor at the margin that can clinically recur later at the margin of the scar with an in-situ component. The consequence of true local recurrence is not only the need for re-excision, but more importantly the risk of tumor progression at, at a deeper Breslow thickness and a worse prognosis for MIS and invasive melanoma. Using trunk and extremity data for invasive melanoma, a 2% true local recurrence predicts 1,400 recurrences of invasive melanomas and 13% rate of upstaging from T1 to T3, translating to 18 more deaths because of local recurrence. For trunk and extremity in situ melanoma patients, 1,400 were predicted to recur and 27 may recur as invasive 27% may recur as invasive melanoma and be upstaged from T0 to T1A, translating to eight melanoma in situ deaths because of true local recurrence. Patient age, pre-op diameter, lenticomaligna subtype, and recurrence were features more likely to require a margin wider than current guidelines. Combining these features increased the amount of information gained compared to one factor alone only by 12% compared with having no previous information about the patient or the melanoma. Breslow thickness, ulceration status, and mitotic rate did not influence the margin. The study provides further evidence on the value of MOS to reduce local recurrence, the need for repeat surgery, and the risk of progression to a greater Breslow thickness with a worse prognosis. The authors hope that future editions of the MOS AUC and other guidelines include MOS surgery as appropriate. This is Christy Bergola reviewing the original article, Anticipated versus Unanticipated Incomplete Mohs Micrographic Surgery for Keratinocyte Carcinomas. 
Impact on Treatment Delays and Final Margin Status by first author Stephanie Lynn and senior author Stacy McMurray. Discontinuing Mohs surgery with positive microscopic margins, termed incomplete Mohs, has been reported to occur in about 1% of cases. If incomplete Mohs is anticipated, surgeons may counsel patients and preoperatively assemble multidisciplinary teams for efficient and expected excision of the residual tumor. If unanticipated, this coordination has to occur post-surgery. The impact of anticipated versus unanticipated Mohs on patient outcomes has not been studied, and this retrospective study aims to do that by comparing rates and times of adjuvant surgery and final margin status when incomplete Mohs of keratinocyte carcinomas are anticipated versus unanticipated. Using Penn's prospectively managed database, incomplete Mohs surgeries were identified between 2015 and 2022. Defined as termination of Mohs with microscopic margins positive for invasive tumor. Cases were classified as anticipated when the Mohs surgeon preoperatively counseled patients on the possibility of incomplete Mohs and potential plans for adjuvant excision under general anesthesia with subspecialist. Perioperative outcomes were rate of adjuvant surgery, time to neck surgery, collaborating surgical specialty, rates of systemic or radiation therapy, and final margin clearance were recorded. The primary outcomes were the rates, timing, and final margin status for anticipated versus unanticipated incomplete MOs. 127 cases of incomplete MOs were identified. 51.2% were anticipated and 48.8% were unanticipated. Anticipated incomplete MOs were more likely to be seen in preoperative consult, were clinically immobile, exhibited focal neurologic symptoms, were larger tumors, had preoperative imaging, and were higher AJCC8 stage. Reasons for incomplete MOs differed between the two cohorts. Anticipated incomplete MOs were mostly com commonly terminated due to periosteal or bone involvement or parotid location, while unanticipated cases were likely to be terminated due to patient factors. Antis anticipated cases were more likely to undergo additional resection under general anesthesia, 98.5% compared to 72.6% for unanticipated cases, and anticipated cases had fewer delays, 3.9 days to additional resection versus 13.2 days to additional resection in the unanticipated group. Overall margin clearance was higher in the anticipated cohort, but final margin clearance was similar among the anticipated versus unanticipated cohort among patients who underwent additional resection. Overall, this study shows that anticipating incomplete Mohs surgery facilitated preoperative assembly of multidisciplinary teams and is associated with higher rates of patient follow-through with additional resection, shorter time to adjuvant surgery, and final margin clearance rates. This is Erica Levitt reviewing the article, Education and Perspectives on the Use of Oral Skin Cancer Chemoprophylaxis, a cross-sectional survey of current fellows in Mohs Micrographic Surgery by authors Anthony Guzman and Emily Ruiz. For background, the ACGME specifies that Mohs fellows should receive training in therapies for preventing skin cancer, and the new board exam requires proficiency in oral chemoprophylaxis. Thus, this survey study of Mohs fellows sought to characterize their education level and clinical indications for prescribing oral prophylaxis. 
63 fellows responded to the survey for a 69% response rate. 31% of the fellows surveyed stated that they received fellowship training in prescribing acetretin, and 59% had fellowship training on prescribing nicotinamide. For both medications, fellows had more training in residency than they received in fellowship. 57 of the 63 fellows intend to prescribe any oral skin cancer prophylaxis after fellowship. Of these, 16 fellows responded that they feel very comfortable prescribing acetretin. Most agreed with using acetretin in patients with five low-risk SECs and even more so in patients with five low-risk SECs and one high-risk tumor. A much higher number, 43 fellows, were very comfortable prescribing nicotinamide. The prescribing threshold was much lower than for acetretin, with respondents supporting its use in patients with diffuse AKs with or without SCCIS and in patients with at least one low-risk SEC. The authors compare the acetretin indications from the fellows with a Delphi expert panel and found that the expert panel had lower thresholds to initiate acetretin. However, the expert panel was only for transplant patients and thus was not a direct comparison to the fellows' responses, which were for the general patient population. Overall, the survey highlights that if prescribing oral chemoprophylaxis is to be a core competency for most fellows, there is definitely room for improvement, both in terms of quantity of fellowship programs that are providing this training, as well as standardization of practice protocols. This is Tara Jennings reviewing an institutional experience of a tertiary referral center in surgically managing patients with Gorlin syndrome by first author Mohamed Dani and senior author Serene Giordano. The article begins with an excellent summary of the pathogenesis, diagnostic criteria, and histopathology of Gorlin syndrome. The authors then summarize the different treatment options, how these options are used within their institution, and the supporting evidence for that treatment modality in the literature specific to Gorlin syndrome. I will briefly summarize each treatment modality and the author's experience and how they are used in their institution. Surgical management. Mohs micrographic surgery and wide local excision is the gold standard treatment for sporadic basal cells. The current literature operates on the assumption that Gorlin basal cells be managed in the same fashion as sporadic ones, but authors point out that a diagnosis of Gorlin syndrome is considered a genetic comorbidity that justifies the use of Mohs in most instances, according to the AUC. Mohs is particularly useful for these patients as they often have numerous adjacent tumors and collision tumors with benign follicular hamartomas. The authors provide a warning in chasing every basaloid neoplasm that may be encountered, as many behave in a more indolent, benign-like fashion in this patient population. They recommend the use of same-day frozen biopsies of clinically suspicious lesions in the same anatomic treatment zone to reduce office visit burnout and and recommend prioritizing surgical management for only high-risk and symptomatic tumors. Destructive treatments. Electrodesiccation. There have been no studies on the efficacy of ED and C specific within the Gorlin population. However, authors note that electrodesiccation can be appropriate for small, select basal cells located on low or moderate risk locations, such as the trunk, extremities, or non-hair-bearing scalp. Surgical debulking. There is no specific evidence for surgical debulking for basal cell and Gorlin syndrome. Authors use debulking with frozen section to allow the surgeon to evaluate and better determine the histologic severity and extent of the lesion to allow if further intervention versus observation is appropriate. PDT. 
Authors summarized several studies showing the success of MALPDT in Gorlin patients, showing clearance rates between 56 to 78 percent. Importantly, recent expert consensus concluded that MALPDT is an effective and safe therapy for treatment of basal cells in Gorlin syndrome. The treatment regimen studies for Gorlin patients consisted of two sessions at baseline, one week apart, and then re-evaluation at three months with a second cycle of treatment if needed. The authors state that they do not use this as a first-line therapy at their institution. Lasers and lights. Authors summarize a case series showing the success of both ultra-pulse CO2 laser and fully ablative CO2 lasers in achieving histologic clearance of basal cells on the face, trunk, and extremities. They also summarize show studies showing that the non-ablative lasers, such as the 755 ALEX and the 595 PDL laser, have all been used in the treatment of sporadic and Gorlin basal cells with some success. The authors state that at their institution, lasers and light devices, particularly ablative lasers, are used as an option for small superficial basal cells. However, it's not a first-line treatment. Radiation. The authors warn against radiation therapy as the literature has shown that ionizing radiation may expedite the development of future basal cells. Patients that have received radiation for medulloblastomas have developed a high number of basal cells in the treatment field, including intracranial and sinus tumors. The authors consider radiation a last resort. Topical therapies. There are no clinical trials assessing the efficacy of topical amicumab in Gorlin syndrome patients. However, authors summarize a few case reports demonstrating its success. For 5-FU, authors summarize an article showing the success of topical 5-FU with topical tretinoin over a 10-year period. The authors touch on patitinib, a topical hedgehog pathway inhibitor recently studied in a phase 2 double-blinded randomized clinical control trial in 18 Gorlin patients. Results showed a complete clinical response in 25% of the basal cells in both the 2% and 4% treatment arms without causing any problematic adverse effect events that prompt many Gorlin patients to dis discontinue systemic hedgehog inhibitors. From this study, the 2% formulation was granted a breakthrough drug status from the FDA and is now undergoing an additional phase 3 double-blinded randomized control trial. The authors used topical treatments in conjunction with other modalities to control growth. The authors then conclude the paper by commenting on combining treatment modalities and provide a review of the literature for mega-session approaches, where surgery is combined with other modalities such as PDT in one session. They then provide an excellent flowchart in Figure 2 summarizing treatment options based on lesion number, size, and depth of invasion. Of note, systemic hedgehog inhibitors were not reviewed in this paper, but are an important treatment option for this patient population. This was an excellent review, and fortunately for our specialty in this patient population, consensus guidelines are currently under development. This is Michael Renzi reviewing the original investigation outcomes of upper limb Mohs surgery repairs using standardized scar scales with particular emphasis on vermilion border involvement by first author Courtney Cromer and senior author Thomas Connexton. The vermilion and cutaneous lips are essential cosmetic and functional units of the face. They serve as a prominent focal point and are involved in many important daily functional and aesthetic tasks, such as oral continence, eating, speech, and facial expressions, including smiling and other nonverbal communication. Mohs micrographic surgery defects and lip reconstructions may involuntarily 
involuntarily or intentionally cross the vermilion border, which can potentially affect outcomes in patient satisfaction. The goal of this study was to compare aesthetic and functional outcomes after upper lip Mohs micrographic surgery between patients with vermilion sparing repairs, or VSR, versus vermilion crossing repairs, or VCR, and to identify factors that are associated with overall worse patient perception of function and cosmesis. The authors performed a single institution retrospective cohort study of linear repairs and rotation flaps based on the nasal labial fold and with a prominent flap limb within the perioral ridids. Patient and surgical characteristics were obtained from an electronic medical record review. Patients were assessed at a minimum of six-week post-Mohs micrographic surgery follow-up, and post-operative photographs were obtained at this time. Patients completed post-operative self-assessments using the patient component of the Patient and Observer SCAR Assessment Scale, or POSAS, the SCAR Cosmesis Assessment and Rating, or SCAR Scale, and a functional questionnaire evaluating eating, drinking, whistling, and speech. Post-operative photographs of patient scars were evaluated by three board-certified dermatologists for the physician scar scale rating and were averaged. Scar scale scores evaluated five cosmetic features of the scar, including scar spread, erythema, dispigmentation, track marks, and hypertrophy or atrophy. 45 upper lip Mohs micrographic surgery defects were identified, including 27 patients with VCR and 18 patients with VSR. The repair type significantly differed between groups as linear repairs were more commonly vermilion sparing than flaps. Only two of 27 VCR repairs were 7.4% and one of 18 VSR repairs or 5.6% had persistent bulldozing after repair with no difference based on repair type. Two of 27 VCR repairs had vermilion mismatch after repair with less than a 2 millimeter height step-off. The mean overall rating of scars by patients with VCR or VSR were equal at 1.8. Scar scale scores were not significantly different between groups within each category with low scores for both groups in every category. Overall impression of the cosmetic outcomes was evaluated with a cumulative score from each patient in both groups, and scores were similar for VSR and VCR groups at 1.3 and 1.2 respectively. There was no significant difference between VSR and VCR groups with regard to functional assessment. Overall, this study highlights the equally high functional and aesthetic satisfaction between those with VCR and VSR after Mohs micrographic surgery at the upper lip. Therefore, surgeons can feel comfortable crossing the vermilion border when needed in order to optimize reconstructive outcomes. This is Dr. Alex Veliga summarizing the review article, Primary Cutaneous Mucinous Carcinoma, a review of the literature by authors Timothy Freeman, Aaron Russell, and Lauren Council. Primary Cutaneous Mucinous Carcinoma, or PCMC, was originally described in the pathology literature by Lennox and colleagues in 1952 and is a low-grade malignancy of sweat gland origin. Epidemiologically speaking, PCMC is relatively rare, with just over 400 cases reported in the SEER database since 1973. Gender predilection is variable in the literature, with both higher prevalences in men, women, and equal prevalences all reported. PCMC most frequently presents in patients aged 60 to 79, and has most commonly been reported to occur in fair-skinned individuals, 
However, a recent meta-analysis by ConnectStat and colleagues reported a significantly and comparatively higher incidence in skin of color patients. Clinically, PCMC most commonly presents on the head and neck, particularly the eyelids as a painless, solitary nodule, ulcer, or cyst-like tumor, though presentation can vary as the latency time from lesional development to presentation averaged three years, but ranged from two to 20 years in one study. Once a mucinous carcinoma is identified from biopsies, the authors emphasize the importance of ruling out metastatic disease and note PET scanning, mammography, even in male patients, and upper and lower endoscopy can be useful in this determination. Correct identification of PCMC begins with biopsy, where the malignancy is characterized by nests and cords of basaloid epithelial tumor cells surrounded by large quantities of pale mucin. Cytologic atypia and mitoses are minimal, and IHC can be helpful in differentiating primary from metastatic mucinous carcinoma, though these staining patterns are very different between different types of metastatic tumors, and I encourage the reader to view the IHC section in Table 1 for an excellent overview of expression patterns of key stains. In terms of treatment, there is no well-established standard of care, and wide local excision, as well as Mohs micrographic surgery, have been reported with success. Despite it being a low-grade malignancy, with regional and distant metastatic rates of 11% and 3 to 7% respectively, PCMC has demonstrated a higher local recurrence rate of 19 to 45%, underscoring the importance of margin control and the potential role for Mohs micrographic surgery. Follow-up recommendations after treatment are every three to six months for the first year after diagnosis, every six months for years two through five after diagnosis, and every six to 12 months for year six and onward. Overall, this is an excellent review of a rare but challenging malignancy, particularly given PCMC's relatively higher risk for local recurrence. When identified, care must be taken to ensure the tumor is not a metastatic extension of visceral disease, and once PCMC is confirmed, surgical treatment with margin control is most supported by the literature. This is Jordan Lim reviewing the original article titled Incidents and Survival Outcomes of Dermatofibrosarcoma Protuberans from 2000 to 2020, a Population-Based Retrospective Cohort Analysis by authors David Zhang and Jeremy Bordeaux. DFSP is a locally aggressive but indolent tumor that has good overall survival. Notably, previous studies have described that male sex, increased tumor size, and increased age at diagnosis have a negative impact on overall survival. However, their association with disease-specific survival remains unclear. This study sought to update the incidence and patterns of DFSP and assess overall and disease-specific survival. From the SEER-17 database, 5,313 patients were included, most of which were young or middle-aged adults, female, and light-skinned with tumors on the trunk. Most had localized disease and were managed with unspecified excision, wide local excision with greater than 1 cm margins, or amputation. Most surgery became more common in the more recent years of the database. There were 60 cases of death from DFSP, representing 1.1% of the cohort. Incidents remained stable over the years being examined at 4.6 cases per million person years. Dark-skinned individuals were at highest risk of developing DFSP with significant increased average incidence of 8.6 cases per million person years. Overall survival did not change over the years being examined and was again worse with increased age, increased size, and male sex, but in addition, lower extremity location and lower household income were also associated with worse overall survival. Treatment with Mohs surgery was associated with increased disease-specific survival, which was statistically significant when compared to unspecified excisions and was approaching significance when compared with wide local excision with greater than 1 centimeter margins. 
Worst disease-specific survival was only associated with age over 80 and tumors over 6 centimeters. The authors discussed that income was not previously associated with overall survival for DFSP and highlight the improved survival found with Mohs surgery. This finding supports that updated NCCN guidelines placing Mohs or excision with complete margin assessment as first-line management. This is also relevant as other studies have found that those with higher median household incomes are more likely to be treated with Mohs surgery and that Mohs surgeons are typically located in areas of higher socioeconomic status. As such, those with darker skin tones that have a higher incidence of DFSP that are also located in areas of lower socioeconomic status may experience reduced access to care, including Mohs surgery, resulting in worse DFSP outcomes. Notably, with the recent addition of Mohs surgery to the NCCN guidelines in 2021, and this data ending in 2020, we may see a change in these outcomes when future data is analyzed. This is Michael Renzi reviewing the original investigation squamous cell carcinoma in situ achieves tumor clearance in more Mohs stages than invasive squamous cell carcinoma by first author Yesel Kim and senior author Naomi Lawrence. Squamous cell carcinoma in situ, or SCCIS, or Bowen's disease, is a common cutaneous malignancy with an increasing incidence of almost tenfold from 1989 to 2017. SCCIS has the potential to progress into invasive squamous cell carcinoma, or SCC, in 3 to 10% of untreated cases. Although SCCIS is typically characterized as being well demarcated clinically, the authors believe that some cases tend to have more subclinical lateral extension and undergo more Mohs stages than the practice average of 1.5 Mohs layers for other common skin cancers. Therefore, they sought to determine whether it takes a greater number of stages for clearance of SCCIS compared with SCC and whether the difference in final defect size and clinical size is larger in SCCIS compared to SCC. They performed a retrospective cohort study of all patients with SCCIS and invasive SCC treated with Mohs at Cooper Center for Dermatologic Surgery in a 10-year period between January 2011 and December 2021. Multiple lesions treated on the same day, collision tumors, basosquamous tumors, atypical squamous proliferations, tumors that did not achieve clearance, and those with missing data points on size or number of Mohs stages taken were excluded. A total number of 4,363 tumors were included with 1,000 66 SCCIS and 3,297 invasive SCC. Invasive SCCs included low and high-risk tumors. The two groups were similar with regard to initial clinical lesion size at 2.1 centimeters squared for SCCIS and 2.2 centimeters squared for invasive SCC, and final defect size at 4.7 centimeters squared for SCCIS and 4.7 for SCC. There was a significant difference as SCCIS underwent more Mohs stages to achieve tumor clearance than invasive SCC at 1.5 compared to 1.4. 71% of SCCs were cleared after one Mohs stage compared with only 61.1% of SCCIS. These findings suggest that SCCIS has more subclinical lateral extension compared to invasive SCC and therefore is appropriate for treatment with Mohs surgery. The authors asked me to make a side note that there is an error in the manuscript and the data was meant to be reported in centimeters squared, as we discussed here, rather than millimeters squared. So please keep that in mind when referring to their manuscript in the journal. A correction will be printed in the February issue.
This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the original investigation, Outcomes of Squamous Cell Carcinoma of the Lip Treated with Mohs Micrographic Surgery, a Retrospective Cohort Study. First author, Yumar Nadir, senior author, Rajiv Njawan. Authors retrospectively reviewed a single tertiary referral center's Mohs case logs from 2010 to 2019. Patients with biopsy-proven lip squamous cell carcinoma were included. 190 patients met inclusion criteria. In total, 98% of patients were Caucasian and 75% were male. Average age was 74 years old. Local recurrence was observed for six out of 190 cases with an average time to recurrence of 5.6 years. However, the range was 0.7 to 11 years. One case of squamous cell carcinoma confined mostly to the mucosal lip in an immunosuppressed patient developed regional metastasis and disease-specific death 21 months after surgery and a post-op adjuvant radiation. Univariable analysis of patient and tumor factors identified younger age, deep invasion beyond the fat, and higher Mohs stages performed. Higher AJCC8 and Brigham Women's T stages were all associated with an increased likelihood of local recurrence. Immunosuppression, large tumor size, mucosal involvement, aggressive histology, and perineural invasion were not independently associated with local recurrence. A disease-free survival of 97% was observed after an average follow-up of 3.6 years. Although certain risk factors such as perineural invasion, differentiation, and size did not individually show to have an impact on outcomes in the cohort, when more than one of these risk factors was present, as used in the Brigham Women's Staging System, patients experienced higher rates of recurrence. Results of this study are consistent with previous reports demonstrating that higher AJCC8 and Brigham and Women's T-stages for cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma may be associated with local recurrence after Mohs. However, authors did not find associations of poor outcomes with T-stage independent risk factors such as vermilion involvement or immunosuppression. The high variance of time to local recurrence was notable in the cohort. Field cancerization from UV-induced mutagenesis and background actinic chelitis play a significant role in development of lip squamous cell carcinoma and could contribute to the cases that recurred long after the average time to local recurrence for cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. This raises the question of whether these longer-term recurrences were in fact recurrences from the original tumor or de novo squamous cell carcinomas arising in a background of actinic chelitis. This is Erica Levitt reviewing the article, The Novel Checkpoint Target Lymphocyte Activation Gene 3, LAG3, is Highly Expressed in Cutaneous Squamous Cell Carcinoma, by authors Mohamed Dani and John Carucci. The authors provide the background that given recent developments of programmed cell death protein 1 or PD-1 checkpoint inhibitors now being used for metastatic and advanced cutaneous SEC, other checkpoint targets are being identified as potential future treatment targets. Lymphocyte activation gene 3 or LAG3 is one of these next generation checkpoint molecules. LAG3 is expressed on tumor infiltrating T cells and binds to tumor antigens and inhibits the anti-tumor immune response. The purpose of this study was to investigate whether LAG3 is expressed in cutaneous SEC. The authors isolated CD8 T cells from three SEC tumors using flow cytometry and performed single cell RNA sequencing for LAG3 and PD1. 
they found that LAG3 was expressed in 50.8% of tumor-infiltrating CD8 lymphocytes compared to 32.5% for PD-1. In a second analysis of LAG3 mRNA expression in the SCC tumors, the authors found that LAG3 expression is approximately eight-fold higher in SCCs in immunocompetent patients compared to normal skin. As LAG3 inhibitors are being tested in clinical trials now for tumors such as for melanoma, the findings from this study suggest that there could be a role for LAG3 inhibitors in cutaneous SEC. We will have to await the results of future clinical trials, but it is exciting that most surgeons are performing basic science research on cutaneous tumor checkpoint inhibitors to contribute to this growing field. This is Christy Regola reviewing the review article Reported Outcome Measures in Mohs Micrographic Surgery in Studies with Defined Techniques for Embedding and Processing of Tissue, a Systematic Review, by first author Panayoida Gabas and senior author Brian Carroll. This article is a systematic review of the published literature examining tissue processing and embedding techniques during the Mohs process. We know that there are numerous ways to process and embed tissue, but most are not presented with large-scale validation of curates and efficacy. The PubMed, Medline, Embase, and Cochrane Library researched using the terms Mohs micrographic surgery, tissue biomechanics, and cutaneous carcinoma, combined with synonyms for Mohs micrographic surgery processing and embedding of tissue, along with articles from Dr. Frederick Mohs. Studies were excluded that had no technical description of Mohs tissue processing in non-human subjects, surgical technique analysis before embedding and processing, and exclusive histologic stain analysis. Inclusion and exclusion criteria were met by 61 articles. The cure rate recurrence rate was assessed in only one article. Tissue conservation was assessed in 47 articles, which is 77% of the total articles. Time saving was addressed in 35 or 57% of the articles. Cost saving was addressed in six or 10% of the articles, and decreased artifact was assessed in 20 or 33% of the articles. Overall, there was a lack of standardization that may contribute to technical execution error errors and variable MOS cure rates throughout the country. It is challenging for studies to validate claims based on recurrence rates because this requires extra follow-up timings and patient participation. Tissue conservation, decreased artifact, time saving, and cost savings are important to consider during the most process, but not reporting cure and recurrence rates are a limitation for these studies. This is Dr. Alex Veliga reviewing the original investigation, Clinical Outcomes in Sebaceous Carcinoma, a retrospective two-center cohort study by first authors Noor Kibbe and Ursa Petrich and senior author Sumaira Asi. Sebaceous carcinoma is a rare anexal malignancy that is typically classified by site, either periocular or extraocular, with prior studies showing worse outcomes for those with periocular tumors as well as those who are male, immunosuppressed, and possessing large and or multifocal tumors. This study aimed to examine the outcomes of sebaceous carcinoma treated at two institutions, Stanford University and the University of Texas Southwestern, and to identify factors associated with recurrence. Data was collected at each institution through review of pathology records guided by keywords, yielding a total of 67 cases of sebaceous carcinoma from both cohorts, 65 of which were primary and two of which were recurrent tumors. 
Demographically, no significant difference was noted between cohorts in terms of age, the average of which was 70 years, sex, 43% of patients were male, and association with Muir-Torre syndrome, 10% of cases were confirmed by germline testing, all of which were extraocular. Immunosuppression and lesional size were also not found to be significantly different between the cohorts. Locationally, 55% of cases were extraocular, with 75% of these confined to the head and neck, and 45% were periocular, with an even split between upper and lower eyelid locations. In terms of treatment, 71% were treated with Mohs micrographic surgery, 10% with complete circumferential, peripheral, and deep margin assessment, 10% with wide local excision, and 8% with orbital extenuation. Across all these modalities, 95.5% of tumors were noted to have clear margins, with the remainder treated with additional curative modalities. Median follow-up across both cohorts was 19.9 months, which identified five recurrences, two nodal, two local, and one metastatic. Out of these recurrences, four were periocular and one was extraocular. To better compare recurrent cases and disease-free cases, the authors performed a univariate analysis, which noted significance relating to lesional size greater than or equal to two centimeters, an odds ratio of 9.6, periocular location, an odds ratio of 7.1, and tumors treated with CCPDMA, an odds ratio of 0.052. Tumor grade, Muir-Torre mutational status, and immunosuppressed state were not significantly associated with recurrence. Further multivariate analysis, including age, Muir-Torre status, anatomic subtype, size, and primary treatment, again identified lesional size greater than or equal to 2, an odds ratio of 9.6, and CCPDMA, an odds ratio of 0.052, as significant. Overall, the study presents novel findings as they relate to risk of recurrence and importance of complete margin assessments such as MOS or CCPDMA that have not been shown in prior studies of periocular and extraocular sebaceous carcinoma. Additionally, the identification of size greater than or equal to 2 centimeters as a risk of recurrence, regardless of treatment type, supports the consideration of adjuvant treatment and closer monitoring in this subset of patients. This is Tara Jennings, and I will be reviewing the original article, Evaluating Predictors of Patient Satisfaction with Facial Appearance After Mohs Micrographic Surgery, Using the Face Cue, by first author William Lau and senior author Abigail Waldman. The objective of this study was to use the Face Cue Skin Cancer Survey to evaluate sociodemographic and clinical differences as predictive factors for post-operative aesthetic satisfaction after Mohs surgery. Of note, the FaceQ Skin Cancer Survey is a validated, patient-reported outcome instrument that captures patient satisfaction regarding aesthetic appearance after Mohs surgery. The survey is linked and available for review in the electronic version of this article. This was a prospective study of 202 patients who underwent Mohs surgery for facial skin cancers at the Brigham and Women's Faulkner Hospital between April 2017 and November 2021. Sociodemographic and clinical characteristics were collected, and comparative descriptive statistics were calculated using the chi-square test for categorical values and the student t-test for continuous variables. Multivariable logistic regressions were generated to predict post-operative satisfaction. The results of the study showed three main statistically significant results, which were similar to the results of other studies on this specific subject. Not surprisingly, the lower face and neck location had significantly greater satisfaction scores compared with those tumors on the nose and nasolabial folds. 
Higher preoperative facial satisfaction scores were significantly associated with higher postoperative facial satisfaction scores, and male patients were significantly more likely to have higher satisfaction scores compared with female patients. Tumor site on the temple showed the greatest postoperative satisfaction, whereas patients with a tumor on the chin showed the lowest postoperative satisfaction. In summary, this study showed that location, gender, and preoperative satisfaction are significantly associated with postoperative satisfaction. Authors suggest that female patients with central face tumors and patients with low preoperative facial satisfaction scores may benefit from greater counseling and support in the preoperative and postoperative period. A limitation of this study was the variable postoperative survey completion time. The authors did not specify the time period in which patients completed the postoperative survey. This is important as we know that patient satisfaction rises as the time goes on in the postoperative period and therefore can be a large confounder in this study. This is Ashley Decker reviewing the article Retrospective Review of Basal Cell Carcinomas in Minority Patients at a Single Academic Institution by Drs. Greif and Najawan. In this retrospective review, the authors sought to characterize the clinical and histological characteristics of basal cell carcinomas in self-identified Hispanic, African-American, and Asian patients. 517 patients across two separate hospitals were included in the study. Most of the basal cell carcinomas across the self-identified minority groups were nodular, occurring on the head and neck, and were treated with Mohs surgery. Growth and symptoms of lesions were more commonly reported among self-identified African-American patients compared with other self-identified minority groups. The authors hypothesized this may be due to presentation for evaluation only after symptoms develop as opposed to when the lesion first appears. The study has several limitations, including it is a single center study, and it characterizes basal cells between race and ethnicity groups, but these groups do have a large spectrum of skin phototypes, really limiting the generalizability of the study. Larger studies are needed to characterize basal cell carcinomas in minority groups. This is Jordan Lim reviewing the original article titled Racial, Ethnic, Education, and Socioeconomic Differences in the Treatment of Head and Neck Melanoma in Situ, a SEER population-based analysis by first author Andrew Tran and senior author Thomas Connexted. The authors describe that as melanoma incidence continues to increase, these diagnoses are made more commonly in affluent and educated individuals and non-Hispanic whites. Despite melanoma being less common in racial minorities and those of lower socioeconomic status, they are seen to be diagnosed at later stages. As such, the study aimed to evaluate the treatment differences and primarily the use of Mohs surgery for head and neck melanoma in situ and lenticle maligna in the context of race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status. The SEER database was queried from 1998 to 2016, and a total of 76,328 adult patients were included. In total, 11.8% of the MIS cohort underwent Mohs surgery, and the utilization of Mohs increased across all races over time. Wide local excision remained the most common treatment modality. Significant differences in treatment were noted based on race, sex, marital status, and sociodemographic variables. I would refer the reader to Table 1 for a review of these results. Most notably, Mohs surgery was used in the highest proportion in those who completed high school, whereas as the level of education decreased and unemployment rate increased, there was less use of Mohs surgery. 
Factors such as race, income, community setting, and insurance type were not noted to meet the logistic regression model as a predictor of Mo's utilization. The authors discuss that these findings do not discount the impact that race and economic differences play in skin cancer treatment. Many minority racial groups are less likely to obtain higher education, which has been reported as the most significant determinant for health literacy. The association between education level and race may be why race was not captured in this logistic model. These findings underscore the importance of patient education in relation to their dermatologic care. Development of appropriate reading level education materials may aid in bridging this gap. Notably, dermatology reading material has been noted as too complex at an average level of a 12th grade reader, whereas the average reading ability for U.S. adults is 8th grade. However, the average Medicare beneficiary reads at the 5th grade level. As such, dermatologists should aim to provide education materials at or below 5th grade reading level for their patients. This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the original investigation, Tranexamic Acid Prevention of Hemorrhagic Complications Following Interpolated Flap Repair, a single center retrospective cohort study. First author, Caleb Freeman, senior author, Justin Leitenberger. Tranexamic acid is an antifibrinolytic agent that prevents fibrin degradation and improves local hemostasis. Authors performed a single institution retrospective medical review on all patients who underwent Mohs surgery at OHSU between 2018 and 2023. All patients who had undergone interpolated flap repair with paramedian forehead flap or cheek-to-nose flap during Mohs were eligible for the study. The posterocular interpolated flap was excluded. Tranexamic acid in doses ranging from 20 to 100 milligrams was administered at the discretion of the surgeon on a case-by-case basis, injected subcutaneously at the pedicle base and around the flap insertion on the nose. Patients were not instructed to discontinue antithrombotic therapy before or after Mohs. Bleeding events were divided into major and minor events. Major bleeding events were defined as all unplanned visits, such as visits to the clinic, urgent care, or emergency department to address bleeding. Minor bleeding events included unplanned phone calls or messages through EMR with concerns for bleeding. Thromboembolic events were defined as any unplanned visit occurring within 30 days of flat placement with concern for DVT, PE, major adverse cardiac event, TIA, or cerebrovascular accident. In the studied period, 115 Mohs cases were performed with subsequent same-day interpolated flap repair with patients divided into the tranexamic acid group, or TXA, and the non-TXA group. The non-TXA group comprised the majority of patients, or 81%. 25% of patients were on anticoagulant or antiplatelet therapy. The paramedian forehead flap was performed on 40% of patients, whereas cheek-to-nose flap was performed on the remaining 60%. The TXA group had a higher percentage of female patients, older mean age, higher rates of antiplatelet and anticoagulant use, and were more likely to have undergone uh, forehead flap. Major bleeding events occurred in 24% of patients undergoing interpolated flap repair, whereas minor bleeding occurred in 18%. Patients who received TXA were less likely to have had a bleeding event, 5% versus 29% in the other cohort. Not a single major bleeding event occurred in the TXA group, compared with seven major bleeding events in the non-TXA group. 
Similarly, only one minor bleeding event occurred in the TXA group, whereas 20 minor bleeding events occurred in the other cohort. Of note, no instances of flap necrosis or thromboembolic events were identified in either cohort. Given the generally higher bleeding rate with paramedian forehead flaps, subgroup analysis was completed of those patients. Of 45 patients undergoing the forehead flap repair of a defect, 40% received TXA. 14 bleeding events were identified in this cohort with only one patient having a bleeding event in the TXA group. That bleeding event was considered minor. Overall, the author's data confirmed the effectiveness of TXA in preventing all types of bleeding episodes among patients undergoing interpolated repair, with lower rates of bleeding occurring in the group of patients receiving subcutaneous injection of TXA without any increased risk of flap necrosis or major major thromboembolic events. One notable limitation of the study is that the subcutaneous TXA administration was determined at the discretion of the surgeons at the time of surgery, which may introduce selection bias. Dr. Lauren Council authored a commentary on the article. She cites a recent randomized controlled trial on the topical application of tranexamic acid to second intent wounds after Mohs. The placebo group had a 10% risk of bleeding compared with no bleeding in the TXA group. While there is increasing data supporting the use of local TXA administration, she suggests proceeding cautiously. The patients at highest risk of bleeding events, such as those undergoing interpolated flap repair, who are on anticoagulant and antiplatelet therapy, are also commonly taking these medications due to an elevated thrombotic risk. Given that the use of TXA is in dermatologic surgery is relatively new, careful consideration of risks and benefits is warranted. This is Michael Renzi reviewing the original investigation, novel biomaterial containing gelatin, manuka honey, and hydroxyapatite enhanced secondary intention healing versus standard secondary intention healing in Mohs surgical defects on the head and distal lower extremities, a randomized controlled trial, pilot study by first author Karen Arnon and senior author Anna Clayton. Second intention healing, or SIH, is often underused and has several advantages compared to primary surgical repair. However, second intention healing requires regular wound care that can be cumbersome to patients. Previous studies using biologic dressings have shown patients report better quality of life during the postoperative period related to less pain, decreased dressing changes, and faster healing times. The novel APIS biomaterial is an advanced synthesis of gelatin, manuka honey, and hydroxyapatite bioengineered to protect wounds, manage exudate, and maintain a moist environment. Use of this novel biomaterial to enhance SIH is hypothesized to reduce healing times when compared with standard SIH wound care. The authors performed a randomized controlled trial to elucidate whether a novel biomaterial enhancers SIH when compared with conventional SIH for surgical defects after Mohs micrographic surgery on the head and distal lower extremities. 16 patients with surgical defects on the lower extremities were randomized to intervention or control by block randomization. 21 patients with surgical defects on the head were randomized in the same manner. Patients were then seen in the office 14 days postoperatively and then every 14 days thereafter until complete re-epithelialization was achieved. Time elapsed from surgery 
Day two, complete radio epithelialization was noted in days. Using a questionnaire, patients self-reported their surgical site wound pain, bleeding episodes, and the ease of wound care on a scale of 1 to 10. Overall, there was no significant difference in time to complete re-epithelialization between intervention at 45.1 days and the control group at 47.2 days. There was also no significant difference in healing time when stratified by location. There was no infection among the control and biomaterial group and no significant difference in bleeding complications. Itching, color, stiffness, irregularity, and overall assessment were not significant among the two groups. There was a significant difference in pain scores at 1.2 for biomaterial versus 2 in the control group, and skin thickness was favored in the biomaterial group. This study highlights that this novel biomaterial may assess with second intention healing with less associated pain and favorable skin thickness. While I was hoping to see the healing time would be improved with this biomaterial, I'm always looking for any intervention that will improve the second intention healing process for my patients, especially for wounds on the lower leg. This is Ashley Decker, and I'm reviewing the article, Industry Payments Comparison Between Female and Male Mohs Surgeons from 2015 to 2021 by Drs. Rosala, Santion, and Waldman. Females make up approximately 50% of the workforce within the field of dermatology. However, this gender diversity does not extend to dermatologic surgery, with women accounting for only 28.1%. The gender pay gap within dermatologic surgery has been studied, with women receiving less mean total annual Medicare reimbursement payments for Mohs compared to men. However, industry relationships, including with female Mohs surgeons, have not been studied, and so this study aims to evaluate the industry payment activity between female and male Mohs surgeons. The authors conducted a retrospective review of the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services open payment data between 2015 and 2021 for Mohs surgeons in the U.S. Gender, academic affiliation, practice region, annual total payment, cumulative payment, and industry payment were collected. Mohs surgeons with no industry payment during that time period were excluded from the study. Male Mohs surgeons received higher mean total payments than female Mohs surgeons, which persisted when the data was stratified based on industry payment type and practice region. Of note, the mean total payment difference between males and females was significant. However, the median total payment distribution was similar. Higher total payments received by male Mohs surgeons skewed the data. Females practicing in the Northeast and those in academics received higher mean total payments amongst female Mohs surgeons. I invite the listeners to refer to Table 1 in the article for a breakdown of payment differences based on gender. This study highlights that women in Mohs are not well represented in industry relationships and are reimbursed less than male counterparts. The authors hypothesize that this may be due to less women being involved in industry compared to males due to interest in other pursuits within the profession. Although there is a similar median total payment distribution between males and females, this mean total payment significant difference supports a gender disparity in females not receiving equivalent high total payment outliers like males. This is Jordan Lim reviewing the reconstructive conundrum titled Repair of a Large Central Forehead Defect by authors Sagar Patel, Tyler Werbel, and Silish Kanda. The authors present an 86-year-old female with a 4.1 times 3.5 centimeter central forehead defect down to the muscle from five stages of Mohs for a nodular basal cell carcinoma. The patient had bilateral tissue reservoirs on the lateral forehead and temples, which were ultimately accessed by diagonally opposed double rhombic flaps with Z-plasties. Each rhombic flap was approximately half the width of the primary defect. Z-plasties were designed with an initial 90-degree angle followed by a 60-degree angle, which allowed great extensibility of the rhombic flaps. 
Designing these flaps diagonally opposed allowed them to minimize tension on the flap when the secondary defects were closed. I would refer the reader to the clinical photographs in the article to fully appreciate this reconstruction. This is Christie Regula reviewing the reconstructive conundrum, reconstruction of a full thickness ear defect by first author Olivia Jew and senior author Bradley Merritt. This is the case of a 61-year-old man with a basal cell carcinoma of the right upper helix. The infiltrating tumor was removed in two stages with a final defect size of four centimeters with significant loss of the upper helical and anti-helical cartilage. Full thickness defects of the ear represent a challenge due to the three-dimensional nature of the ear, as well as the simultaneous goals of preserving function, restoring contour, and minimizing asymmetry. A wedge excision was considered for repair, but was thought to diminish the vertical height and lateral protrusion of the ear. A composite graft was likely to lack sufficient blood supply in this case, and a helical rim advancement flap would have risked flap necrosis due to the large size and the distance of the superior auricle from the lobule. The patient's strong preference for a single stage procedure preempted the use, preempted the use of a staged flap. So the defect was reconstructed by breaking the process into several components. First, a crescenteric wedge was taken parallel to the remaining helical rim to facilitate a cartilage graft and to decrease the anterior-posterior dimension of the ear. The cartilage graft was secured to the upper rim to provide structure to the defect. Next, two opposing banner-type rhombic flaps were elevated, one from anterior and another posterior to the ear. These flaps were then transposed to fold over the cartilage, meeting at the apex of the helix to envelop the cartilage and complete the new rim. No complications occurred and the patient had excellent functional and cosmetic results at one year follow-up. And there are some great descriptions and photos uh, in the article. This is Michael Renzi reviewing the reconstructive conundrum, repair of a defect involving the nasal tip, dorsum, ala, and sidewall by first author Aaron Dalkey. The author reports the repair of a 4cm defect involving the nasal tip, supertip, dorsum, left nasal ala, including part of the rim, and the left nasal sidewall following six stages of Mohs surgery for a recurrent basal cell carcinoma. Due to significant alar collapse with inspiration, restoration of the nasal valve patency was a prudent first step achieved with ear cartilage grafting. Restoration of nasal valve patency was with suspension suture is usually the preferred approach by the author, but was less suitable here because the trajectory of the suture would cross into the flap donor area, risking compromise to flap movement. A large two-stage cheek-to-nose flap was then performed to restore bulk to the alar, alar rim, nasal sidewall, nasal tip, and super tip. Due to extensive laxity of and thin skin of the mid-face, there was ample tissue reservoir to size the flap large enough for coverage of the defect. An additional triangle was then added to the traditional melolabial flap design at the superior margin of the flap in the infraorbital area to allow for adequate coverage of the lateral and inferior ala. Finally, a small brose graft was placed on the dorsal nose at the superior aspect of the defect. The patient was seen back at three weeks for second stage surgery, where the flap was inside, separated, debulked, and reinset. Outcome at six-week follow-up can be seen in figure three of the article.
This is Dr. Alex Valiga reviewing the reconstructive conundrum, Repair of a Large Defect Involving the Owner Hand and Fifth Digit, by authors Curtis Lockhart and Thomas Connextab. The authors present a 69-year-old patient with a 4.2 by 3 centimeter defect on the left hand following Mohs micrographic surgery for a moderately differentiated squamous cell carcinoma where invasion into muscle and perineural invasion were noted on intraoperative frozen section. Notably, the defect involved both dorsal and palmar aspects of the proximal fifth digit and exposed underlying tendon. Taking into account multiple factors, such as the defect size, depth, as well as tumor staging, a bilobe transposition flap was chosen as it utilized the tissue reservoirs present on the proximal aspect of the lateral ulnar hand and wrist, as shown in figure two. The flap was incised to the sub-Q and transposed into the defect with a primary lobe traveling along the lateral ulnar hand and tertiary lobe closing in a proximal to distal orientation along the wrist. The hand was then splinted and the arm secured in a sling postoperatively to optimize recovery. This case illustrates the creative use of the workhorse bilobe flap to reconstruct a challenging defect while also providing an optimal wound bed considering the possible need for adjuvant radiotherapy to the area. This is Tara Jennings reviewing reconstruction of a full thickness earlobe defect by Drs. Laura Vallis and Miriam Totanchi. The authors report the reconstruction of a full thickness 2.9 by 1.9 centimeter defect of the inferior lateral right earlobe following two stages of Mohs surgery for a basal cell carcinoma. In this case, the patient did not have physiologically attached earlobes and the defect was lateral, sparing the medial portion of the earlobe and the earlobe insertion point. This precluded the use of a single stage or classic bilobed or Limburg folded flap. The authors designed a random pattern two-stage interpolation flap from the preauricular cheek. The flap was incised and the superior portion was elevated in the subcutaneous plane, leaving one to two millimeters of subcutaneous fat attached to the undersurface of the flap. The flap was then carefully dissected deeper, inferiorly to the deep subcutaneous fat, with special attention to avoid the parotid gland while maintaining good blood supply to the flap. The donor site was closed primarily and the flap pedicle was rotated into position and sutured in place. Flap takedown was performed on post-operative day 21. The patient had minimal pain, restored earlobe symmetry, high patient satisfaction, and a good cosmetic result at 6.5 months, which can be seen in figure 3. This is Erica Levitt reviewing the reconstructive conundrum, full thickness defect on the earlobe and inferior helix by authors Marie Clark and Ali Khan-Samani. The defect was a full thickness 4 by 3 centimeter defect in the earlobe and inferior helix. The authors chose a tunneled transposition flap from the preauricular cheek based on the superficial temporal artery. A curvilinear donor flap was designed on the preauricular cheek and the superior portion was undermined and lifted. As typical, the tunneled portion was de-epithelialized and the flap was placed through a tunnel created in the remaining earlobe and sutured into place. This was a nice repair that did well at restoring bulk for the full thickness defect using only one stage. The authors did mention a wedge repair as an option with the disadvantage of shortening that earlobe compared to the other side. But I do think a wedge repair would be another simpler option for this defect for patients who don't wear earrings and can accept some ear asymmetry. This is Jordan Lim reviewing the communication article Cytokine Storm Due to Intralesional Interleukin-2 Therapy for Cutaneous Intransit Melanoma by first author Nazar Isaac and senior author Addison Demmer. 
In transit melanoma, metastases have been treated by multiple different localized and systemic treatments with varying degrees of, of success and morbidity. High-dose systemic IL-2 is one of the earliest immunotherapies introduced for metastatic melanoma. However, its severe toxicities limited its use. IL-2 has instead been used intralesionally, thus avoiding these systemic toxicities, but it is still associated with mild flu-like symptoms. Its mechanism of action remains unknown, but hypotheses include activation of cellular immunity, production of cytokines, and induction of killer cell activity. This is a report of a 65-year-old female with an ulcerated 8-millimeter Breslow BRAF-negative metastatic melanoma of the right heel with management over time including wide local excision, lymph node dissections, pembrolizumab, ipinevo, and chemotherapy. Upon transition to chemotherapy, she developed multiple in-transit cutaneous metastases. These were managed by surgical deep bulk followed by bi-weekly intralesional IL-2 at a dose of 3 cc's per injection for a total of 24 to 32 tumors. Two days after her ninth treatment, she experienced severe nausea, vomiting, fatigue, and poor oral intake. She was febrile, tachycardic, and hypotensive, requiring admission to the ICU for resuscitation and vasopressor support. With a negative sepsis workup, it was determined that her symptoms were suggestive of cytokine storm secondary to the IL-2 injections. After triple pressor support and stress-dose hydrocortisone, she recovered and was discharged on prednisone. IL-2 injections were discontinued, and unfortunately, due to further unsuccessful treatment, the patient succumbed to her disease. The authors describe that this is the first case of cytokine storm after intralesional IL-2 for cutaneous in-transit metastatic melanoma. Cytokine storm is a result of a systemic cytokine release triggered by an intense inflammatory signal or antigen load overwhelming the body's immunomodulary controls. Early symptoms typically include fever, fatigue, anorexia, diarrhea, and arthralgia. Although this is a rare complication, its early recognition and management can prevent ultimate end organ damage and death. This is Ashley Decker, and I'm reviewing the communication, occult amelanotic melanoma detected during Mohs micrographic surgery for basosquamous carcinoma by doctors Rahman and Ibrahim. In this communication, the authors present the case of a 71-year-old male who underwent Mohs micrographic surgery for a biopsy-proven basosquamous cell carcinoma. On clinical exam, he had an atrophic, asymmetric, scaly lesion on the right medial cheek that was approximately 3 by 1.2 centimeters in size with poorly defined borders. Microscopic examination of curatage before Mohs confirmed the diagnosis of basal cell and squamous cell. However, during evaluation in the Mohs margin, several areas of the epidermis had confluent single and nested melanocytes suggestive of melanoma in situ, even though pigment, pigment was absent clinically. Due to suspicion of MIS, additional slides were prepared using MART1 staining, which confirmed the diagnosis. An additional two levels were required to achieve clear margins. This case highlights the use or utility of immunostains in the Mohs clinic. In addition to its use in biopsy-proven melanomas, it can also be used if there is a concern for a collision tumor involving a melanoma. In this case, the immunostains allowed for confirmation of the undiagnosed melanoma in situ, as well as confirmation of margin clearance. This is Dr. Alex Valiga reviewing the communication persistent vascular steel syndrome causing a non-healing wound after Mohs micrographic surgery by first author Olivia Ju and senior author Adela Cardonis. Dialysis access steel syndrome is a significant complication of arteriovenous fistula creation affecting about 1-8% to of patients on intermittent hemodialysis and is more commonly seen in patients with brachial artery fistulae. 
The syndrome results when blood is shunted away from tissue distal to the fistula, resulting in ischemic symptoms such as coolness, pain, and ulceration. The authors of this communication describe a 74-year-old patient with a notable history of CKD on intermittent hemodialysis via a brachiocephalic arteriovenous fistula, who underwent Mohs micrographic surgery for a squamous cell carcinoma of the left dorsal third metacarpophalangeal joint, which was then repaired by a Burroughs graft. The post-operative course was complicated by graft failure and persistent ulceration and pain at the surgical site. Careful questioning revealed the patient experienced intermittent coolness and pain of the left hand since placement of his AVF one year prior. And an ultrasound study and arteriogram of the limb revealed findings consistent with dialysis access steel syndrome. To address this, the patient underwent multiple AVF ligations and debridement of the non-healing surgical site, which resulted in complete healing noted at two-month follow-up. I thank the authors for highlighting an occurrence of dialysis access steel syndrome after Mohs surgery, particularly given the increasing prevalence of dialysis-dependent patients worldwide and the lack of similar clinical scenarios described in the dermatologic surgery literature. Key takeaways for the dermatologic surgeon operating on an upper extremity site distal to an AVF include careful ascertainment of any steel syndrome symptoms such as coldness and pain, as well as evaluation of distal pulses prior to surgery. Additionally, surgeons can consider evaluation of the limb with Doppler ultrasound, both with and without compression of the AVF, as the latter maneuver can increase the sensitivity for detecting steel syndrome. This is Christy Vergula reviewing the communication, squamous cell carcinoma in situ of the nipple, successfully treated with Mohs micrographic surgery, by first author Emily Patton and senior author Emily Wong. Squamous cell carcinoma in situ of the nipple is rare, with only 10 cases being reported. Prior to this article, Mohs surgery had not been reported as a treatment modality for squamous cell carcinoma in situ of the nipple. This case is a 66-year-old woman who presented with a six-month history of a two-millimeter pink, rough, scaly papule on the right nipple papilla. The pathology showed squamous cell carcinoma in situ, being careful to distinguish from Paget's disease, which is very often the sign of an underlying breast cancer. The patient had also had a recent mammogram, so no further imaging was thought to be indicated after the pathology returned. Mohs was performed and the first stage of surgery showed no tumor at the margin or in the ductal structures. The lactiferous ducts are important to evaluate as they are continuous with the epidermis and as there is a report of cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma in situ extending down the ductal epithelium. There is also a case report of concurrent Bowen disease of the nipple and breast cancer of the ipsilateral breast, so it is important to uh, ensure that their routine breast cancer screening is current. The resultant defect of this surgery was 0.8 by 0.9 centimeters, and it was allowed to heal by second intention. Morale Alexis kabirian skelsey provided commentary after the article. And she notes that as squamous cell carcinoma in situ of the nipple is rare, it is often subject to overly aggressive treatment measures with elevated risk of morbidity, mortality, and higher costs. This case is important as it supports the use of Mohs for this tumor, rather than a significantly more disfiguring approach that may not be associated with the high survival and low recurrence rate of Mohs. This is Erica Levitt reviewing the communication, a subcutaneous nodule with poliosis, an unusual presentation of the melanoma X blue nevus by authors Jamie Karch and Brian Simmons. This is a case report of a 44-year-old man who presented with a cyst-like nodule with overlying poliosis or white hair on the scalp. 
The nodule and poliosis had been present since birth, but had grown over the past few years. The lesion was excised and came back as a deep melanoma with 16 millimeter Breslow depth arising within a pre-existing blue nevus. Further workup and treatment revealed two positive sentinel lymph nodes, and eventually a liver metastasis developed after one year of pembrolizumab. The patient is currently undergoing dual immunotherapy. The authors defined melanoma X blue nevus as a group of melanomas that either arise within a blue nevus or have histologic features of a blue nevus. There is typically a delay in presentation, and the average Breslow depth is 6.8 millimeters, and the scalp is the most common site. Melanoma X blue nevi are more genetically similar to uveal melanomas, with a GNAC or GNA11 as the most common mutations. BAP1 is another mutation that has been used to differentiate benign from malignant blue nevi. However, in this case, BAP1 was actually retained. Overall, this was a case report of an unusual clinical presentation of a melanoma, as in a larging, benign-appearing cyst-like nodule with poliosis since birth. We as clinicians need to have high vigilance to work up and biopsy lesions that do not behave as expected. This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the communication, reverse cross finger flap for deep defects involving the dorsal digits. First author, Michelle Juarez, senior author, John Carucci. This communication highlights a small series of five Mohs cases on the distal dorsal digit and nail bed with resultant defects varying in size from 1.7 to 4 centimeters. All defects involved exposure of vital structures such as tendon or bone. With a minimum of three month follow-up, all flaps survived without complications. The cross finger flap is an excellent option for deep defects that expose vital structures on the distal digits. Although the traditional cross finger flap is suited for volar defects, the reverse cross finger flap is a modification used for reconstruction of dorsal defects. This flap is well documented in the plastic surgery literature. It's an excellent option because of its thinness, pliability, minimal donor site deformity, and simplicity. The vascularity and viability of the flap is based off the dorsal cutaneous branches from the palmar digital artery supplying the dorsum of the finger. Regarding execution of the flap, when considering the donor site for a reverse cross finger flap, the hemidorsum that is closer to the defect of the recipient finger should be used. When there are competing donor fingers, the finger that is functionally less important should be used. The base of the flap should be located on the dorsum of the donor digit and be angled to prevent tension on the pedicle. The donor site is allowed to initially granulate. Pedicle division is performed three weeks after the initial procedure. The defect on the donor site is repaired by a full thickness skin graft from the antecubital fossa. This is Jordan Lim reviewing the communication article, Dermatologic Surgery Reimbursement Isn't Keeping Up with Inflation, by authors Lily Park, Zachary Lum, and Patrick Lee. The article begins by describing the rising cost of healthcare post-COVID-19 pandemic due to inflation, medication shortages, and rising wages. In addition, Medicare payment conversion factor was cut by 2% in 2023 and expected to be cut again in 2024 to counterbalance the increases in ENM reimbursement. This paper characterizes the trends in Mohs surgery and malignant dermatologic excisions in relation to inflation, utilizing the codes 17311 for a first layer of Mohs and 11602 for a malignant trunk or extremity excision between 1.1 to 2 centimeters. The difference between rate of inflation and the change in physician reimbursement over time was calculated. 
Between 2007 and 2023, most surgeries sustained a 38.6% decrease in reimbursement when adjusted for inflation, whereas utilizing the Consumer Price Index adjusted inflation, reimbursement should be increased by 35%. Similarly, for Excision Code 11602, there was an inflation-adjusted decrease of 21.7% when it should be increased by 16% when adjusted for inflation. These declines were most significant between 2020 and 2023. The authors discussed that the resource-based relative value scale is a physician payment system used by CMS and other payers that uses a unified conversion factor to eliminate discrepancies between specialties per CPT code. As of 2023, the Medicare conversion factor stands at 33.89, marking an 11.8% decrease from its value in 2007 without accounting for inflation. This impacts all healthcare professionals and their ability to provide access and quality care to patients, especially with the rising cost of healthcare delivery. The authors call on the dermatologic community to be aware of these trends and advocate for our field to policymakers to protect a sustainable payment structure. This segment of the episode features general dermatologic surgery and cosmetic article reviews. This is Isabella Jones reviewing one-year data on the longevity and safety of hyaluronic acid filler for static horizontal neck rightids by Cypristine and Cofitona. This is the first prospective trial looking at hyaluronic acid fillers injected into the neck. It was a one-year single-center study of 26 patients 22 years of age or older with necklines of grades 1 through 3 in the transverse neckline scale. Subjects were randomized to receive Restylane Refine or Saline using cannula on one side of the neck and needle on the other side. Subjects were treated at day zero and again at day 30 if deemed appropriate. Subjects in both groups also had the option of crossover treatments at day 60. The authors used a 32-gauge needle and a 27-gauge gauge cannula and describe their methods of injection in the paper. The subjects were graded using the transverse neckline scale, photography, and the global aesthetic improvement scale on day 360. Subjects received an average of 1.4 cc's of filler when combining the volume used at day zero and at day 30. All subjects achieved a significant improvement from baseline on day 360 using their measured endpoints. There was no significant difference in the average improvement on day 60 compared to day 360. Some contour irregularities were noted in the first 30 days of the trial, which all resolved with massage. There were no reports of long-term or delayed onset swelling, nodules, granulomas, long-term contour irregularities, or bluish color during the 360-day trial. In the discussion, the authors include two images of both ultrasound of the neck and a dissection to visualize important anatomy. They emphasize the importance of being able to visualize the cannula and using a needle of only four millimeters to ensure the filler is, in, is injected above the platysma and to stay in the superficial fatty layer, which is free of neurovascular structures in the anterior neck. 
to avoid complications, they also recommend using proper induction technique with small aliquots of filler and selecting a soft HA gel with small particles and small G prime. This is Ardalan Minokhede discussing the manuscript, the differences in the practice of cosmetic dermatologic procedures between physicians and non-physicians. This manuscript and project was supported by the ASDS Future Leaders Network and authors Dr. Rossi and Dr. Lee are involved in the ASDS with Dr. Rossi, one of the assistant editors of our journal, and Dr. Lee faculty in one of our ASDS cosmetic fellowships. The authors state that there's an increasing popularity of cosmetic dermatologic procedures in the U.S. and cite a rise from 12.5 million procedures in 2018 to 14 million in 2019. With this trend comes a growing presence of non-physician providers, often treating in non-medical settings, and the study looked to compare patient-reported experiences with cosmetic procedures performed by physicians and non-physicians. The authors used a web-based survey delivered to 4,000 participants, and the participants who responded to the questions describing provider type, procedure location, adverse events, uh, showed that while approximately one-third of the respondents had undergone cosmetic procedures shown in Table 1, physicians were the primary providers at about 62%, with non-physicians at around 31%. When looking at provider demographics by procedures, in Figure 1, the authors highlight that one-third of laser and light treatments, including chemical peels and laser hair removal, are completed by non-physicians. The study highlights a significant difference in the severity of adverse events, with non-physician providers associated with more severe complications compared to physicians. And Table 2 shows influential factors that patients report with respect to provider selection and referrals from physicians and cost considerations tend to be influential with price often driving choices towards non-physicians. Despite safety concerns, about 70.3% of the respondents believe that non-physicians are qualified to perform cosmetic procedures. Suggestions for reducing adverse events include having a physician present during the procedures and enhancing non-physician provider training. Ultimately, the study concludes that by emphasizing the need for more rigorous training for non-physician providers, ensuring physician availability to address complications, and potentially restricting the scope of practice for non-physician providers may improve outcomes. Overall, the authors highlight that consumers should be informed about provider qualifications and prioritize safety when deciding on whether to pursue cosmetic procedures and which provider to select. This is Tara Jennings reviewing the communication effective and safe alternative to traditional local anesthetic methods for Mohs micrographic surgery and surgical excision by first author Rumana Rahman and senior author Cameron Ruxar. Due to a national shortage of lidocaine with epinephrine, dermatologists and dermatologic surgeons are seeking to find alternative methods for local anesthesia necessary for routine diagnostic and in-office surgical procedures. The authors of this paper report an alternative formulation of tumescent anesthesia, which provides safe and effective anesthesia for Mohs micrographic surgery and surgical excision. 
The original Klein-Tumescent formulation is classically used for larger procedures such as liposuction, with a preparation that consists of 0.65 milliliters of 1 to 1,000 epinephrine and 150 milliliter vial of 2% lidocaine in 1 liter of 0.9% sodium chloride. This solution may be buffered with 12.5 milliliters of sodium bicarb. The authors altered this formulation to consist of a 1 milliliter single dose ampule of 1 to 1,000 epinephrine or 1 mg of epinephrine and 1 50 milliliter vial of 2% lidocaine in a 500 milliliter 0.9% sodium chloride bag. The solution may be buffered with 6.5 milliliters of sodium bicarb. This alternative formulation allows for more adequate hemostasis compared to the original formulation as it doubles the concentration of lidocaine and triples the concentration of epinephrine. Authors of the study used the preparation on 21 patients undergoing Mohs or excisional surgery. They report that the amount necessary to adequately anesthetize the location is double the amount used with standard Lido with Epi. So for example, they use about 6 milliliters for a 1 centimeter Mohs layer. Authors report that the results of pain control were comparable to standard Lido with Epi, and due to the increase of epinephrine, they believe the hemostasis was improved, particularly for the scalp, other high-risk areas of bleeding, and for patients on anticoagulants. Importantly, patients reported no side effects from the epinephrine, and the diluted solution protects against lidocaine toxicity. Authors state that the solution lasts about two weeks without losing efficacy and can be stored in a standard refrigerator. Overall, this is an excellent report of what appears to be a safe and cost-effective alternative for dermatologic surgeons to utilize during the lidocaine shortage. I am Karen Lal and I will be reviewing minimally invasive gender-affirming procedure exposure and training outcome of a resident-reported survey. The prevalence of transgender patients is increasing, and often as dermatologists, we are among the first to provide care for these patients. Gender-affirming care procedures are not formally taught in residency education, nor is gender-affirming care. An anonymous cross-sectional electronic survey was sent to all U.S. Dermatology Residency Program coordinators to be distributed to approximately 1,200 residents. Of those, 230 residents responded to the survey with a response rate of 18%. The most common minimally invasive gender-affirming procedures observed during residency included laser hair removal in 39% of residents and soft tissue augmentation in 18% of residents. 72% of residents reported never performing any procedure during residency, with 93% reporting interest in receiving more formal education during their training regarding these procedures. 24% of residents reported never receiving education regarding lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning care during training. Program size, type, whether university or community-based, and presence of subspecialized gender affirmation clinic did not impact resident comfort or familiarity with gender-affirming care. This study shows that residents are interested in learning more about these types of procedures and would benefit from onset additional training. The sample size, however, of respondents was low and not generalizable. This is Ardalan Minokata discussing the manuscript Lack of Diversity of Sexes in Clinical Trials for Laser Hair Removal by Drs. Lee, Dover, and Lapidy. Dr. Dover is faculty on one of our ASDS cosmetic fellowships. The premise of this manuscript was that for those individuals transitioning from male to female, laser hair removal is relevant. Specifically, male facial skin is described as having more adnexal structures when compared with female skin, which may affect outcomes. And the authors state that this is likely due to higher levels of circulating testosterone. So the study was to characterize the assigned sexes of patients in trials evaluating laser hair removal. 
The authors did a PubMed systematic search using terms hair, laser, removal, and dermatology or skin and cutaneous, and looked to see if with the energy-based device, the outcome evaluated was hair reduction. They looked specifically at the face and excluded any trials that had an indication for a disease with a disproportionate occurrence in males um, or females. The results are highlighted in Table 1 with publication characteristics. 28 studies met inclusion criteria of the 121 articles they found. 3,882 patients were treated with lasers or IPL. 79% of the, of the studies reported the sexes. It showed that 88.7% were female, 11% male, 11 non-binary. No studies looked at laser hair removal outcomes by sex. There really appeared to be no detectable difference in reporting on sex between studies from the U.S. versus international studies. But of those that did report sex, a higher proportion of U.S. studies included men compared with international studies. So in the discussion, the authors highlight that male skin is underrepresented in clinical trials looking at laser hair removal. They did note the limitations that some studies truly do not report sex and that trials that were treating off the face were excluded. The authors highlight the issue of non-binary patients not being represented, and they conclude that there should be more studies analyzing laser hair removal by sex, given that we can get a better understanding of treatment outcomes in both male skin and those who are transitioning from male to female, which represents somewhere between 0.4 to 3% of the U.S. population. Welcome to Beyond the Digest, offering bonus content covering surgical articles in dermatologic literature outside the peer-reviewed journal, Dermatologic Surgery. Reference the episode description for publication details of the content covered. My name is Amy Green, and I will be reviewing the research letter entitled, Tumor Size is the Most Significant Risk Factor for local recurrence in DFSP, a large-scale retrospective cohort analysis by Dr. Baig and senior author Dr. Nguyen out of UT Houston. DFSP is a rare aggressive soft tissue sarcoma that affects the dermis, subcutaneous tissue, and occasionally underlying fascia and muscle. The metastatic rate is low, but the local recurrence ranges from 2 to 21%. Negative surgical margins are the most important prognostic factor for DFSP. These authors performed a large-scale retrospective cohort analysis to describe the demographics, tumor characteristics, recurrence-free survival, and interventions of DFSP to determine risk factors for recurrence. Data from 4,451 patients with histologically confirmed DFSP was collected from the SEER database and included in the study. 56 had recurrence and 52 patients had DFSP-specific death, which was 1.17%. Descriptive demographic data is summarized in Supplementary Table 1. Univariate and multivariate logistic regression models were, de- were used to determine predictors of recurrence. In patients with recurrence, the median tumor size at time of diagnosis was 3 centimeters. Age greater than or equal to 45, unmarried status and male sex was significant risk factors on univariate analysis for risk of recurrence, but did not influence risk in multivariate analysis. 
in the multivariate analysis, tumor size of greater than or equal to three centimeters was significantly associated with recurrence and disease-specific death. Figure one shows the Kaplan-Meier curves on recurrence-free survival based on tumor size, and you can see clearly that tumor size affects uh, recurrence-free survival. Although there is mixed data in the literature on the correlation between tumor size and recurrence and or disease-specific death, this specific study showed a significant association even in multivariate analysis. Limitations of the study include the fact that the SEER database has limited data on select patient information, and they do sometimes define tumor size in categories, which may limit the ability to delineate an accurate mean. But overall, the study does suggest that tumor size plays a significant role in the risk of recurrence for DFSP. My name is Amy Green, and I will be reviewing the original article entitled Retrospective Analysis Shows the Cost of Mohs Surgery Decreases When Adjusted for Medical Inflation by Dr. Sam Path and senior author Dr. Galen Folk. So as we know, Mohs micrographic surgery is considered the gold standard treatment option for non-melanoma skin cancers on the head, neck, hands, feet, and genitalia, which allows for complete margin assessment with maximum preservation of normal healthy tissue. Several studies have demonstrated the cost-effectiveness of this surgical technique when used appropriately. Understanding the cost trends of Mohs surgery is very important, and these authors sought to do that by investigating Mohs surgery costs over time when adjusting for medical inflation while considering the perspective of patients, payers, and healthcare systems. This was a retrospective claims analysis using data from the International Business Machines Market Scan, Commercial Claims and Encounters Database from 2007 to 2019. A query of the database for instances of Mohs-specific CPT codes in adults was conducted. Aggregate data per claim regarding deductible, copay, reimbursement, and total costs were provided for each CPT code annually. The total cost was calculated by the sum of deductible and coinsurance, copay, and reimbursement, and the out-of-pocket cost to the patient was calculated by subtracting the insurance payout from the total cost. All costs were adjusted for 2020 U.S. dollars. A linear regression model was built using annual averages to determine the estimated change in cost per year. The process was applied for both out-of-pocket costs and total costs per claim. A Pearson correlation coefficient was calculated to determine the strength of relationship between out-of-pocket expenses and total cost per claim. I will direct you towards the paper for a more in-depth description of the methods section. The five CPT codes analyzed were 17311 through 17315. The total adjusted cost per claim decreased by 15 to 25% for four of the five most specific CPT codes, so 17311 through 17314. The insurance payout also significantly decreased for those same four codes. Contrastingly, the patient-adjusted out-of-pocket expenses increased significantly by 33 to 45% for those four codes. Figure 1 will show you the averages and total cost and patient out-of-pocket expenses across the entire study period from 2007 to 2019, so I'll direct you towards that paper to view that figure. Table 2 shows linear trends and associations of out-of-pocket expenses and cost per claim for the most specific CPT codes, and again, those same four of the five codes demonstrated 
negative linear trends in total average cost per claim while also showing an increase in average out-of-pocket costs. The greatest decrease in cost was $19 annually for CPT code 17311, and the lowest decrease was $10 for CPT code 17314. The CPT code 17315 showed a small increase in cost, but it was not statistically significant. The authors hypothesized for that that for code 17315, it did not follow trends because it was the least used code and therefore subject to the most variation. A Pearson correlation coefficient showed that for the same four of the five CPT codes, as the average out-of-pocket expenses increased, there was a significant decrease in total cost per claim. The strength of the correlation was very strong for CPT code 17311, 17312, and 17313. The study suggests that the reduction in total cost per claim is directly related to decreased reimbursement by insurance companies. The decreased reimbursement did not lead to an increased intensity of care with the average number of stages remaining constant over time per ACMS data. Studies have shown that Medicare reimbursement has also decreased by 14.4% for the most specific procedures, which is probably partially responsible for the decrease in reimbursement by commercial insurers. This study specifically looked at patients with commercial insurance, but the trend likely exists with CMS patients as well. Overall, I think this is a very illuminating study on the reimbursement reductions and the transition to increase out-of-pocket costs for Mohs surgery. This is Yessel Kim, and I'll be reviewing Jad's original investigation, Predictors of Patient Satisfaction with Mohs Micrographic Surgery at Time of Surgery and Three Months Post-Surgery, a prospective cohort study by first author Katherine Thompson and senior author Jeffrey Scott. Understanding factors associated with patient satisfaction in dermatology has intrinsic value to help optimize patient care. The authors sought to investigate factors associated with patient satisfaction with Mohs for non-melanoma skin cancers at time of surgery and at three months post-surgery. The secondary objective was to investigate factors associated with a change in satisfaction scores between these two time points. Patients undergoing Mohs from July to October 2022 were enrolled on day of surgery. An electronic survey, which consisted of the Patient Satisfaction Questionnaire 18 question version, PSQ 18, with one additional question about patients' mode of transportation to their appointment, was also asked. The survey was administered after at least one Mohs stage, but before the surgical defect was closed. Participants were also asked by telephone three months following surgery and the PSQ-18 was again administered in addition to three relevant scales from the validated phase Q, skin cancer module, appraisal of scars, cancer worry, and satisfaction with information. Of the 110 participants who were initially enrolled, 100 completed the baseline survey. Of the 100 participants who were contacted at three months post-surgery, 44 completed the surveys. Baseline PSQ-18 scores were significantly lower in patients who required three or more stages to achieve tumor clearance compared to patients requiring only one stage. There was no statistically significant difference in baseline PSQ-18 scores between the scheduled appointment start time, 8 or 8.30 or 9 or 10 a.m. Patients whose surgeries extended through the lunch hour past 1 p.m. had significantly lower PSQ-18 scores.
Patients on antiplatelets or anticoagulants demonstrated marginally lower PSQ18 scores at time of surgery. No statistically significant associations were identified between the scores at the time of surgery and patients' age, sex, household income, rural versus urban address, distance from clinic, cost of commute, mode of transportation, Charleston comorbidity index, immune status, tumor type or site, pre-op lesion size or defect size, or repair type. At three months post-surgery, patient satisfaction was significantly lower in patients who had a greater distance from their home and in patients with higher mean cost of commute. Patients requiring three or more stages continue to have significantly lower satisfaction scores. Surgical sites on extremities were also associated with significant decrease in PSQ18 from time of surgery to three months after surgery. PSQ18 scores decrease for larger pre-op and defect sizes. The authors identified several factors associated with patient satisfaction scores and in patients undergoing MOs. PSQ18 scores in patients requiring three or more MOs stages were consistently lower both at the time of surgery and three months post-surgery. Satisfaction scores were also significantly lower at the time of surgery in patients whose surgeries extended past 1 p.m., but this effect was not seen at three months post-surgery. There was a significant decrease in PSQ18 scores between time of surgery and three months post-surgery in patients who had surgical sites on lower extremities, larger pre-op lesion size, and larger post-op defect size. This study did not assess patient pain, post-surgery debility, and time to healing, which likely play a role in satisfaction in three months post-surgery. The study also had a 56% attrition rate between time of the first and second survey administration. Nevertheless, the authors identified several factors associated with decreased patient satisfaction scores in MOS, which could hopefully then be used to further examine how to improve our patients' surgical experiences. This is Yasel Kim, and I'll be reviewing JAD's research letter, Incidents in Time to Development of Malignancies Arising on the Scalp of Patients with Erosive Pustulodermatosis Based on Sex, a retrospective analysis by first author Norhan Shamlul and senior author Charlene Lamb. Erosive pustulodermatosis, or EPD, is an inflammatory condition that typically affects the scalp of older males likely due to sun damage. Cutaneous malignancies in the setting of EPD have been observed to be aggressive and difficult to treat. Authors aim to evaluate the incidence and time to development of malignancies arising on the scalp of patients with EPD in clinics associated with the Suburban Tertiary Care Academic Center. This is a retrospective analysis of patients with a histological or clinical diagnosis of EPD of the scalp between 2000 and 2021. A total of 80 patients were evaluated for prior and subsequent development of biopsy-proven malignancy on the scalp. Overall, 55% of patients developed acutaneous scalp malignancies after PPD diagnosis, a majority being males of 72.7%. 46% of patients had a scalp malignancy prior to EPD diagnosis, and 51% of this subgroup developed a subsequent malignancy. Squamous cell carcinoma was the most common malignancy, 
and there was no statistical difference between malignancy-free time for patients who had malignancy on their scalp prior to EPD and those who did not, or between immunocompromised and non-immunocompromised patients. Median time from EPD diagnosis to malignancy diagnosis was 2.44 years for males and 3.17 years for females. Adjusting for age at a diagnosis of EPD, the hazard of developing a malignancy was 80% higher for males than females. This study suggests that males may be more likely to develop a scalp malignancy after being diagnosed with EPD. Therefore, patients with EPD should be monitored closely for development of malignancy, especially if they have been recalcitrant to previously successful therapies. This is Elizabeth Cusick reviewing the research letter to the editor in the JAD entitled The Anatomic Region Impacts the Duration of Action of Ropivacaine During Dermatologic Surgery by first author Dr. Thomas and senior author Dr. Minkus. The goal of the study was to characterize the difference in the duration of action of ropivacaine between anatomic regions of varying vascularity. Single institution, this was a single institution non-placebo controlled clinical trial of 29 patients undergoing Mohs micrographic surgery where the patient participants were anesthetized at the nose, which is a highly vascularized site, and the shin, a poorly vascularized site, with a subcutaneous injection of 0.5 mLs of 0.2% ropivacaine. The sensitization was determined by pinprick before the injection at baseline, and then every 15 minutes until sensation returned. The primary endpoint was taken for the pinprick sensation to return. The median duration of ropivacaine was 60 minutes at the nose and 210 minutes at the shin. Percentage of participants who regained sensation within one hour was 75.9% on the nose and 3.5% on the shin. Ropivacaine is chemically similar to bupivacaine, a commonly used long-acting local anesthetic, but it offers a better safety profile, has better intrinsic vasoconstrictive properties, and carries less risk of motor blockade and cardiovascular arrest. The reported duration of 6.14 hours is significantly more than the observed in this study. However, the duration of the shin may be significantly longer because the participants did not regain sensation at the shin by the end of the study. In general, in tissues with rich vascularity, local anesthetics are more likely to be absorbed in the systemic circulation at a greater rate, thereby reducing the local concentration and subsequent nerve exposure. This study highlights an inconsistency between the reported duration of long-acting ropivacaine and the short-lived anesthesia experienced by patients in highly vascularized regions. Clinicians should consider the potential for shorter-than-expected pain coverage. However, this study was limited by its small sample size and further large-scale studies are warranted. This is Elizabeth Cusick reviewing the original article in the JAD titled Defining and Quantifying Histopathologic Risk Factors for Regional and Distant Metastases in a Large Cohort of Vulvar Squamous Cell Carcinomas by first author Dr. Charaglu and senior author Dr. Carucci. 
The article begins by providing the background that vulvar squamous cell carcinoma is a rare tumor with a relatively good prognosis when treated at a localized stage. However, once regional and distant metastases occur, vulvar squamous cell carcinoma can be rapidly fatal. Thus, it is important to identify tumor prognostic features so that high-risk cases can be prioritized for further diagnostic workup and treatment. However, at this time, there's limited data that exists on the extent of risk factors associated with various histologic pathic factors at this time. The aim of the study was to estimate, estimate the risk of regional and distant metastases at presentation and sentinel lymph node status for vulvar carcinoma based on histopathologic characteristics. This was a retrospective cohort study of 15,188 adults squamous cell cases from the National Cancer Database diagnosed between 2012 and 2019. Authors provided specific estimates of risk for clinically positive nodes and metastatic disease at presentation and sentinel lymph node positivity according to tumor size, moderate and poor tumor differentiation, and lymph vascular invasion. These histologic features were all significantly associated with the tested clinical outcomes in multivariable analysis. Moderate and poor differentiation, as well as lymphovascular invasion, were all associated with significantly poor, poor overall outcome in survival. Therefore, our th authors conclude that there is an association of histopathologic characteristics of vulvar vulvar squamous cell carcinoma with clinically important outcomes. These data may provide individualized information when discussing diagnostic and treatment recommendations, particularly regarding sentinel lymph node biopsies. They also may help guide further staging and risk stratification efforts for vulvar carcinoma. This is Tara Jennings, and I will be reviewing the original investigation, Histologic Margin Status as a Predictor of Relapse in Lentico Maligna Melanoma, by first author Mai Huang and senior author Arthur Sober. The current standard of care treatment for Lentico Maligna Melanoma is surgery with the recommended clinical margins based on the National Institute of Health consensus statement created in 1992. However, previous studies have proposed that the suggested clinical margins may not be sufficient due to high recurrence rates between 8 to 20% due to subclinical disease. The objective of this study was to determine whether histologic margin status is an independent predictor of progression. This was a retrospective study of 268 invasive lentico maligna melanomas diagnosed from 1990 to 2019 at MassGen Hospital. Margin status was collected for each tumor and grouped into three categories, including negative, positive, and close, which is considered tumor found less than three millimeters from the margin. Other data collected included location, Breslow thickness, ulceration, mitoses, lymphovascular invasion, perineural invasion, surgery type progression and recurrence, among others. Of note, all patients in this study underwent wide local excision or staged excision. Mohs micrographic surgery specimens were not included because they were performed at a different facility. The results of this study showed that progression developed in 20% of the 268 patient. Of these, local recurrence was seen in 13.4%, both local and subsequent metastases seen in 2.6%, 
and only metastases seen in 4.1%. Of the 41 patients with positive excision margins, 49% progressed. Of the patients with close margin status, 45% progressed. Of the patients with negative margin status, 12% progressed. Positive and close histologic margin status was found to be the strongest predictor of progression by two different statistical methods. The only other factor that was significantly correlated with worse progression-free survival was location on the head and neck. In summary, this study showed that positive and close histologic margin status is the strongest predictor of lenticular malignant melanoma progression. Something that I would like to point out about this study is that 76% of the tumors included were located on the head and neck. We know from previous studies that lenticomalignum melanoma on the head and neck have higher recurrence rates, and thus the majority of the study population is already considered high risk. Furthermore, surgeons often may cheat the recommended clinical margins for tumors on the head and neck due to the cosmetically sensitive locations. I urge readers to consider these two points before generalizing this data to all lenticomalignum lesions, but rather use the study as a data point to further validate the importance of the Mohs micrographic surgery procedure and complete margin analysis for these challenging lesions. This is Kate Matosko, and I'll be reviewing Association of Histopathologic Grade with Stage and Survival in Sebaceous Carcinoma, a retrospective cohort study in the National Cancer Database in the November issue of JAD. Authors looked at 1,162 cases listed in the National Cancer Database, of which 438 were determined to be high-grade tumors, which the authors classified as poorly differentiated or undifferentiated tumors. Multivariate logistic regression analysis showed the following factors significantly associated with high-grade tumors. Periocular or other head-neck location, larger tumors, older age, and more advanced stage. On the Kaplan-Meier analysis, patients with high-grade sebaceous carcinoma had worse five-year overall survival of 56.2% versus 73 0.8% for those with low-grade sebaceous carcinoma. High-grade histology was an independent predictor of overall survival. Overall, the study suggests that high-grade status is an independent predictor of advanced stage and poor outcomes in sebaceous carcinoma. This is Kate Matosko, and I'll be reviewing primary Merkel cell carcinoma is associated with increased extended risk of subsequent melanoma and non-epithelial skin cancer in the November issue of JAD. In this study, authors examined data from 17 cancer registries available in the Surveillance, Epidemiology, and End Results database for 2000 through 2019. Patients were included if they had a histologically confirmed case of Merkel cell carcinoma, and those with a subsequent diagnosis of melanoma or non-epithelial skin cancer, such as sebaceous gland tumors, sweat gland tumors, DFSP, and Kaposi's sarcoma. From the 9,973 cases of Merkel cell carcinoma, 73, or 0.7%, developed melanoma, and 105, or 1.1%, were subsequently diagnosed with non-epithelial skin cancer. Patients with Merkel cell carcinoma were 2.28 times more likely to be diagnosed with melanoma than the general population, and 26-fold increased in risk for non-epithelial skin cancer diagnosis. 
This study suggests that regular long-term screening would be very beneficial to patients with Merkel cell carcinoma. This is Elizabeth Cusick reviewing the research letter to the editor in the JAD entitled The Anatomic Region Impacts the Duration of Action of Ropivacaine During Dermatologic Surgery by first author Dr. Thomas and senior author Dr. Minkus. The goal of the study was to characterize the difference in the duration of action of ropivacaine between anatomic regions of varying vascularity. Single institution, this was a single institution non-placebo controlled clinical trial of 29 patients undergoing Mohs micrographic surgery where the participants were anesthetized at the nose, which is a highly vascularized site, and the shin, a poorly vascularized site, with a subcutaneous injection of 0.5 mLs of 0.2% ropivacaine. The sensitization was determined by pinprick before the injection at baseline, and then every 15 minutes until sensation returned. The primary endpoint was taken for the pinprick sensation to return. The median duration of ropivacaine was 60 minutes at the nose and 210 minutes at the shin. Percentage of participants who regained sensation within one hour was 75.9% on the nose and 3.5% on the shin. Ropivacaine is chemically similar to bupivacaine, a commonly used long-acting local anesthetic, but it offers a better safety profile, has better intrinsic vasoconstrictive properties, and carries less risk of motor blockade and cardiovascular arrest. The reported duration of 6.14 hours is significantly more than the observed in this study. However, the duration of the shin may be significantly longer because the participants did not regain sensation at the shin by the end of the study. In general, in tissues with risk rich vascularity, local anesthetics are more likely to be absorbed in the systemic circulation at a greater rate, thereby reducing the local concentration and subsequent nerve exposure. This study highlights an inconsistency between the reported duration of long-acting ropivacaine and the short-lived anesthesia experienced by patients in highly vascularized regions. Clinicians should consider the potential for shorter-than-expected pain coverage. However, this study was limited by its small sample size and further large-scale studies are warranted. Thank you for listening to Derm Surgery Digest, the official podcast of the Dermatologic Surgery Journal. To access these featured articles, author videos, and much more, visit journals.lww.com slash dermatologic surgery. To learn more about the American Society for Dermatologic Surgery, visit asds.net.